All right, good morning. And so I want to say thank you both to Casey and to Greg for sharing with us this morning, uh, both about things that God has placed on their hearts, but also uh, his word. And so we chose that word specifically from Psalm 119 about God's word dwelling within us and being prized by us because of what we're going to talk about this morning. And so our beginning point is going to be in Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 9, okay? So turn there in your, and, I, and actually turn there this morning because I want you to see something. So grab your Bible, grab your iPad or your phone or something, and turn there with us because there's something important I want you to look at in the text here uh, this morning. <clears throat> so while you're turning there, I want to tell you a baseline point or two points for, for this entire talk or sermon this morning. So the first one is this, is that the Bible is God's Word. That is a baseline for us as a church here at Normandale, but also for our talk this morning, I want you to remember is that the Bible is God's Word that is given to us so that you and I would know Him or come to know Him. And, uh, and so this has been passed down to us through the centuries by Christians who lived before us, who prized it just like you and I do. Uh, but it was also sustained throughout the, that time period by the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, so that is the point number one, is that the Bible is God's Word, and He has protected it and brought it to us to where we can read it today. The second point is this, is that the Bible is true. The Bible is true. So here at Normandale, we hold to the doctrine of the inspiration and the inerrancy of scripture. What that means is that the Bible is God-breathed. God breathed it out, or he is the Bible's source, and as such, the Bible does not contain any errors. The Bible is true. We can trust it. So that's our baseline for this morning, okay? So the Bible is God's word, and the Bible is true. That's where we're beginning. Now, I'm telling you all of that because of where we're heading next for the rest of this sermon. So I want you to look at Mark chapter 15. Look at verse 9, or rather, look right above verse 9, because in most of our Bibles, most of our translations, there's going to be a little bracket there. And this bracket says this, some of the earliest, and mine says MSS, that means manuscripts, some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with 16.8. That means the oldest and the earliest, most reliable manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Mark do not contain verses 9 through 20. So what does that mean for us? So, so that's why, we're, that's, so what that means is what we're going to talk about for the rest of this sermon. But I, in this, you can see this is bracketed off, separate from the rest of the Gospel of Mark. This is, there's a similar case in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, which is the woman who's caught in adultery. She's, you know, the story is where she's caught in adultery, and she's drugged before Jesus, and then all the men are going to stone her, and then Jesus says, hey, let the first one who's without sin be the first to throw the, throw the stone. And then no one throws the stones because they all recognize they're sinful, and then they leave, and then he turns to the woman, and he says... Look, 
There's no one here to going to stone you, so go and sin no more. That story is, has the same brackets as this does at the end of Mark. And so the question is, is why is that the case? Well, the earliest manuscripts don't contain these verses. For some of us, that's a scary thought. That's a scary thing. When you begin to look at this, you think like, whoa, but wait, what do you mean the earliest manuscripts don't contain these verses? Does that mean that I can't trust them or, or I shouldn't read them? Or what does that mean for the rest of the Bible? Can I trust anything else that the Bible says if these verses aren't in the earliest manuscripts? Like, what do I do with that? So here, let me, let me unpack this for us as, as, we're, as we're moving along because what I, here's my main thesis. My main point is this. The fact that we can know with such precision that these verses were not originally in the Gospel of Mark should give you more confidence in Scripture. The fact that we can know with such precision should give you more confidence in your Bible as God's Word. That's the main point this morning. So if you don't take anything else, take that away you should have more confidence in Scripture. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. But before we do, let's pray, and then we're going to dig into some history together. And so, Father, come before you. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the believers who have passed it down to us throughout the generations so that we can know you and know your word. And so we, so we love you for that. And so I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts to hear from you, to hear about a God who so desperately loves us that he went throughout history to sustain his word so that we can know you today. And so fill us with confidence in you and in your strength and in your ability to be made known now to where we can rely on you and rely on your word. And so we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So all of this talk, all, everything I've said so far, leads us to a, a field of study called textual criticism. If you've never heard of that before, don't worry about it. If you don't want to get into it, don't worry about it. But what it is, is it is the study of manuscripts and copies of manuscripts to determine which reading in the manuscripts is the original one that Mark wrote or that Paul wrote or that John wrote. Um, and so that's the whole field of, there's a whole field of study with scholars doing this, of looking at manuscripts and saying, okay, this one's earlier, this one's original. And, uh, and so when we say we believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, when we believe that God breathed them out, what we're saying is that God breathed out the text and the message of the actual autograph or the original gospel, or the original letter that was written by John or Paul, or, or Mark, or Luke, or any of those guys. So the actual physical letter that Paul wrote to those guys, that, that is the thing that God breathed out. And so there are two authors in every book of the Bible. There were two authors. There was the human author, the very real human author that writes just like you and I do on pages on his MacBook, or, or like handwriting his note. But there was a secondary author working alongside the very human author, and that is the Holy Spirit, who is giving him the words to speak. Now, it didn't work like this, to where all of a sudden John or Peter or Mark went into a trance, and he's like, um, and his hand starts moving, and then he 
he's unconscious and he comes back awake and then all of a sudden he's got a whole letter or gospel here. That's not how it worked. It was a guy who worked with sources and worked over time with rough drafts and he came to a, a completed gospel that he published and then sent out to churches to understand who Jesus was. It was a very human process, but throughout that entire arc, throughout that entire process, the Holy Spirit was with him, working with him to guide his gospel or guide his letter along the way to be able to pass out to churches. That's the way it worked. But here's the issue for us, and here's an issue, is that if we say those originals handwritten by those guys, were the thing that were inspired by God. The issue for us is that we don't have those originals today. We don't have them. And so they were written, remember, in the, in the first century. That means year from year 33 is when Jesus died. So the first Paul's letters would have been starting written about year 40, 45, somewhere in there. Until, until the Revelation was written and the Gospel of John written by John in the 90s of A.D. Those are the, that was when the, the, the new, books of the New Testament were written, somewhere between the year 40, 45, and the year 90 to 100. And so, uh, and so, uh, so we don't have those originals. But let me tell you what, I, what we do have, not me personally, but what we collectively as Christians have related to the New Testament scriptures. But before we do, let me tell you this. If this sounds scary to you, don't let it be. Don't let this be scary. There, there's a whole lot that we're going to talk about uh, this morning that's, that's going to build up a lot of confidence within you with regard to your Bible. And so don't let this be scary. We believe in God. We believe in a God who is powerful enough to save our souls. Therefore, he's powerful enough to sustain his word throughout the generations. So I want you to hear that. So don't be scared, because, but here's our first question. How can we be sure that what we have today in our Bibles was originally supposed to be there? Like, if we know that these verses here at the end of Mark were likely not original to the Gospel of Mark, how can we be sure that any of the words in our Bibles are supposed to be there or were originally there? So let me tell you this. We're going to go back in time, do a history lesson slash textual criticism lesson. So, the types of manuscripts that we have today. So there are three different ways in which people wrote or things that people wrote on. So you had, you had uh, uh, papyrus, which was early paper. There were reeds pressed together, and that was early paper. And it was cheap. You had codex, which was an early form of a book. It was different pages bound together. And, uh, um, and then there were also parchments, which were animal skins, and those were really long-lasting, and they, they turned those into scrolls. So we have today over 5,800 manuscripts from the year 1454 and earlier. So, so Greek, I'm talking about Greek manuscripts. So Greek is important because that's the language that the New Testament was originally written in, and the year 1454 is important because that's the year that Gutenberg made his printing press. And so when you're looking at oldest manuscripts, you want, you want manuscripts that are older than Gutenberg's press. Now, this is where it gets interesting for us. Because prior to Gutenberg's print, printing press, every letter was handwritten. Every copy 
of the New Testament was handwritten by professional scribes. So just like when you were in fifth grade or fourth grade and you wanted to write a, write a note to your friend across the hall, what did you do? Or your friend uh, you know, across the, the, the desk, to, it doesn't matter, it's stupid. Anyways, you would handwrite your letter and then you'd pass it along. Well, the same thing for us is, is when these guys wanted to copy the New Testament, they had to handwrite it because there were no computers. There was no MacBook. There was no printing press or anything like that. And so, and so all of these manuscripts, these Greek manuscripts from earlier than Gutenberg, we have 5,800 of them over. And there are, we have many more that are not published yet, but, but that's what we have currently. Now, the oldest ones the ones closest to Jesus and the apostles' time, so year 300 and earlier, we have about 48. About 48. And so we have the complete complete Gospels, we have almost a complete New Testament uh, from that year and earlier. Uh, And the oldest manuscript we have that's handwritten, it's it's called P52, it's in England, contains a few verses from John chapter 18. And, And this manuscript is from the early 100s, the very early 100s. And so, and so if we say the Gospel of John was written in around 90 AD, that's when John, he lived into the 90s and he, he, wrote, his, he wrote his Gospel late, uh, late in the first century, so around the 90s. The Gospel of John copy that we have is from 20 to 40 years after it was published which is amazingly close, amazingly close to when John actually wrote it or when he published his. Now, how does this compare to other ancient texts that we have? So I'll give you one. I'll give you two. One is Julius Caesar's, his, his Gaelic Wars. So he is Julius Caesar's, one of the most important Romans to ever live, he wrote his Gaelic War in the year 58 to 50 BC. As it is today, we have 10 total manuscripts of his Gaelic Wars. And the oldest manuscript we have of his Gaelic War is from 850 AD, 900 years after he wrote. But there's virtually no disagreement as to whether the words that that we have of his Gaelic War are the ones he published. Everyone agrees. What we have today is what he published. Yet, when we look at the New Testament, we see that we have copies of the Gospels within a hundred years of when they were written. Like, many of them. 48. We have 48 copies within a hundred years of the New Testament being written. And so our, our, our scope of, of, of the time frame of being close to the original writing of our New Testament documents is amazingly close. It far and away surpasses any other ancient text. Another one is, is Tacitus, his Annals and Histories. He wrote in 100 AD. The earliest manuscripts we have of his texts are from the 9th and the 11th centuries. That is seven to 900 years after he wrote. And there's virtually no discussion as to whether we have the, the, the words that he wrote or not. But when we come to the New Testament, we can see we far and away surpass every other record we have for every other ancient text. Now, when we are looking at those manuscripts, and I, I'm sorry if this is boring, but this is, this is 
this is interesting, at least for me, because this, this begins to tell us the story of a God who is, who is bringing his word along throughout the ages and sustaining it so that you and I would come to know who he was or to know who he is. And so when we're looking at the manuscripts, so say we've got 100 manuscripts or 10 manuscripts in front of us. Not all of the manuscripts are going to agree with one another. There are variances within them. Why would there be variances between the different copies of John's gospel or Mark's gospel or Paul's letters? Well, remember, these were handwritten. And throughout time, not all language was standardized to have the same spelling for every word. And so most variances between, between manuscripts was spelling. That's, that's the vast majority of any, any discrepancies between manuscripts is spelling. But there's a second one is, is a scribal error. So, so say you're writing and you're jamming along to, to Limbiscuit too loud and, and you, you, you miss a line. And so you, you, you read your line and then you, you skip a line and, and just start writing the next one because you're not really paying attention to what you're writing. You're just jamming and you skip a line on accident or you repeat a line on accident. And we've all done this, like copying notes or something like that. We've all made errors and just skipping notes. Well... When we take two manuscripts and we start comparing them, we can say, oh, this guy, he messed up here. He, he missed his, he, he skipped a line or he added a line here on accident because he was, he was just kind of mind-numbingly dull copying stuff. And so, and so there's, there's scribal errors like that that we can pinpoint out and know based on all the other copies we have that this one was an error by this guy. The last one, which is likely what happened here in the end of Mark, is an intentional clarification. So, with some scribes, they would read a text, and they would say, this doesn't make sense. I'm going to add a little bit to clarify what the author was saying. And so, uh, and so that's possible what was happening here in Mark, because if you look at verse 8, it's a totally terrible ending to the Gospel of Mark. Look, Jesus has just resurrected, and uh, he says, listen, Listen, the angel says, go, Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. Go tell his disciples he's going to meet you there. And then the women run from the tomb. And because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. If you're writing this and copying this for future generations or for your other believers to come and to believe in Jesus, that's an awful ending. And so perhaps a scribe, took parts of, like, looked at Luke and looked at Matthew and thought, that's not a great ending, so we're going to add a little bit uh, to here to kind of give it a fuller ending. Maybe that's what happened. We don't know. But here's the truth, is that we have so much evidence to be able to look at and compare that we can know with precision what should be there and what should not be there. That is evidence of God's hand guiding his pro the transmission of his word throughout history so that you and I can come to know him and know the truth. So here's a question, because when most of us think of ancient manuscripts, we think of a paperback book. So when you buy a paperback book from half-price half books, or when you buy one at Walmart or Amazon, and after you read it, so say you're reading The, the Born Identity from 1980, you're gonna, you want a copy of it. And so you go to half-price books, and you go get The Born Identity, and, uh, and you look at the, the, the trade paperbacks, and you're like, oh, man, these are, I've been wanting this book for a while, and uh, so you're pulling it out. Most of those paperback copies, if they've been read one time, are in terrible condition. 
So when you read it, it's the spine's all bent, and you've got a page maybe falling out. And that's, that's how we envision these texts being. But there was a study done in 2009 in which they looked at how long texts could be used by people. And so there, were, there, were, uh, there, there, there was a study of, of ancient libraries, some as few as 25 books, some as much as 1,000 books. They were all thrown out at one time. And, uh, and so this, this scholar went and studied them to see how long would these texts have been used before they were either thrown away or retired. And there, in, this, in these libraries would be letters with dates and things like that on them, so you could tell. And what he found was, is most ancient texts, books and, and things like that, were used anywhere from 150 to 500 years. On average, in these ancient libraries, books were used anywhere from two to 300 years. Which is astonishing, really, if you think about it, because you're like, you think of like a book on your shelf, your Harry Potter book, your, your, your Sorcerer's Stone. You're like, man, imagine that thing being there in 200 years and having a kid come and pick it off and trying to read it. Like, we can't think about that because we think of it like all of our stuff is made to be able to read it for a while and then throw it away. But for them, books were incredibly valuable because if you wanted a copy of a book, you had to pay a guy to make a copy for you, and then he would give it to you, and then like this thing was treasured. Now think especially of people who held on to a religious text, like, like New Testament documents. If Paul wrote a letter to Normandale, you better believe Normandale's not throwing that sucker away. We're holding on to that. We're, pride, we're going to put it behind a glass case because Paul wrote a letter to us, and we want to hold on to that thing. And so the idea of the New Testament manuscripts, the originals, being around for two or three or four hundred years is not actually that far-fetched. All the while, there would have been more and more copies made based off of those throughout those several hundred years. So all that to say, there is vast evidence that the originals were available to be copied for a very long time. And so therefore, the copies that we have today are actually very closely linked to the originals. There's actually evidence for this. There's a guy named Tertullian who wrote, he was a Christian, wrote in 190 AD. And he said this. He's like, he was, he was getting mad at some people who were kind of, kind of mutilating the text. They were wanting to, to change some of Paul's letters. And he says, listen, dudes, what are you doing? Like, you, we all know that you're messing up this text, and so therefore, if you really want to know what Paul said, go to, go to the churches Paul wrote. They have his original writings there. And so if you want, go check out Thessalonica. If you want, go check out Rome. Go check out Ephesus. They have his books there. And then compare them, and you'll see that what you're writing is wrong. Did you catch that? Paul, he said... They had Paul's writings, and there were, you could go and check your copy among the original. Later on, a guy named Bishop Peter, no relation to the other Peter, but this is a different Peter, and, and he wrote in 306 AD. And he said, the autograph copy of the evangelist John, John's actual gospel of John, which to his day in 306 has been preserved by the Most Holy Church of Ephesus, which was the church John was most closely linked to. He said in 300 AD, the church in Ephesus still had John's gospel. 
where you could go and check it out yourself. And so there's vast evidence that the New Testament documents were available for an extended period of time, not for 10 or 15 years. All the while, copies could have been made to be passed along and translations made, passed along so that God's word is spreading and it's right. But, catch this. There are more than just those 5,800 Greek manuscripts because Greek's not the only language people speak. So we actually have over 10,000 Latin copies of the New Testament or, or manuscripts. We have over 10,000 Syriac, Georgian, Coptic, and Ethiopic manuscripts relating back to the New Testament. So we have over 25,000 old copies in total of the New Testament and New Testament books before the printing press was created. That is astonishing. So, so, but catch this. Even if every single New Testament document ever was burned up, was all of a sudden disappeared in every language, if every single New Testament document was gone, we could, we, we could reconstruct almost the entire New Testament based off of early church pastors, their sermons and their writings and their correspondence, their letters. We could reconstruct the entire New Testament from just their writings. What that tells us is that the New Testament is the best attested book from all antiquity, by far. Like, we have an embarrassment of riches that stand behind your Bible. We have an embarrassment of riches. And what that tells us is that there is a God who is guiding and protecting his word so that you and I would hear and believe and come to know him. That is what that tells us. History tells us that our God is real and right and powerful enough to protect his word. And it's because of this embarrassment of riches that scholars are able to look at this text here in Mark and reliably say it's unlikely these verses are original. And that should give you great confidence in the truthfulness of your Bible because we can know that with such precision that these belong here and these don't. That's why the editors of your Bible bracket those sections off. That is a confidence builder. So, given that we have great confidence in our Bibles that they contain exactly what the apostles and the New Testament writers wrote. Here's the second question. Can we trust them? Did John and Mark and Peter and Luke, did they get it right? Did they know what they were talking about? So I want to give you, I want to give you three reasons why we should trust them. Here's the first one. They were eyewitnesses. Listen to what Peter says. This is in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1. For we did not follow, this is verse 16, we didn't follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you this power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, catch this, instead we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For he received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is, he's talking about Jesus' baptism here. His baptism and his transfiguration. Peter was there and he says, listen, I, I listened. I heard God speak from heaven. And he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven. When we were with him on the holy mountain, it says transfiguration. He's like, I was there. I heard it. Now I'm telling you about it. I was an eyewitness. So don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. That's what he's saying. And then John says this in 1 John, the beginning. 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed, and what we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Paul just said the same thing. I mean, uh, John just said the same thing. He's like, I was there. The things that I saw, the things that I touched, the things that I observed, I've written so that you could come and join us in following Jesus. That's what he just said. Paul said the same thing, 1 Corinthians. Remember, Paul had his experience with Jesus on the Damascus Road where Jesus came down from heaven, blinded him, and, uh, and so, he, so he had this experience with Jesus. He said, listen, I'm telling you about these things. He appeared. Christ died for us according to the scriptures. He was buried. He raised. He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter. He appeared to the twelve, which are all the disciples. He appeared to 500 brothers and sisters. Then he appeared to James, his brother, uh, Jesus' brother. And then, and then all the apostles. And last of all, as one born at the wrong time, catch this. Jesus appeared to me. These guys were eyewitnesses. They're not telling us crap that they made, stuff that they made up. Shouldn't have said that, sorry. They're not telling us stuff they made up. They're telling us things that they saw, they witnessed, they were a part of, they touched. He's like, we, we were there. But then sometimes you can get stuff, stuff messed up. Like if you listen to an eyewitness testimony in a court, sometimes you're like, I don't know if I really trust that guy. Like he was there, but did he see things right? Here's the second reason why you can trust their testimony. Look at this. Look what Peter says again in 2 Peter. Verse 1, starting in verse 20. Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophet, prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, everything that is written in Scripture was, were written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, giving them the words to speak as they edited and as they wrote. But John, Jesus actually says this. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 26. He said, there's going to be someone who's going to come to help you. It's the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, catch this, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Jesus promised his disciples that after he dies, after he leaves and ascends to heaven, the Spirit was going to come to them and remind them of everything that Jesus spoke. And so can you remember a lecture 
that you had in college 20 years ago or 40 years ago? Remember, John wrote his gospel in around 90 A.D. That's 70, 60, 70 years after Jesus lived. Can you remember a lecture from that long ago? No. Therefore, Jesus says you're going to have help to come and help you remember the things that I taught. And it's going to be the Holy Spirit who's going to come and live in you. And he's going to bring things to mind that I said. Therefore, you can reliably trust it. That's what Jesus said. Here's the third thing, third reason why we should trust what they say. The lives of the earliest Christians bear witness to their truthfulness. Let me say that again. The earliest Christians' lives tell us they were telling the truth. So let me tell you about a guy named Tertullian. So he was a, he was a, a pastor in the 190s, and he wrote, he wrote uh, some stuff for us, but in in one of, his, one of his books, he said this. Peter was crucified. Paul was beheaded. And this is the worst of the worst. John, who wrote, the, who wrote Revelation, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He was thrown into boiling oil. Which apparently didn't kill him somehow. Didn't, didn't kill him. But that sounds absolutely awful. And so the fact that these guys, they, they're witness to Jesus and they're continued writing and they're continued preaching about Jesus led to their death. Yet they remain committed and faithful in the midst of it tells us that what they told us is true. Because here's the reality is you don't die for a lie. You don't die and be thrown into boiling oil for something you made up simply because you think it's fun because you want to be someone cool. Like, like, if you're trying to be cool, or you're trying to get, become popular, or something like that, and someone, like, the army comes in, they're about to throw you in boiling oil, you're going you're gonna to give it up pretty quickly. At least I would. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good, actually. I made it up. I, I just promise. I quit. Like, like you're going to give it up. But no, these guys don't. They head into it. And so, therefore, we have every reason to believe that their writings are reliable. What they believed about Jesus is true. And so, since we have every reason to have confidence in the modern New Testament, we can know that like, there's a God out there. There's a God who wants to know you. There's a God who has guided this process so that way you would read his word and come to believe in him and follow him with your life. And so because of that process, we have every reason to believe that what we have is very, 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 very close to what these guys originally wrote. And I want you to have confidence in that. So I don't, I don't want things like this. When you come to the end of Mark and it says the earliest manuscripts conclude with verse 8, they don't contain 9 to 20, I want you to be filled with confidence because we can know that, not be filled with fear based on what else is missing, what else is there that shouldn't be there. Because that's the guys, there's a guy named Bart Ehrman who, who, who writes a lot of books about that. But the reality is if you look at his arguments, they're based on his experience. They're based on the fact that he doesn't believe that things can be the way they are because he sees discrepancies or whatever it is. And he's, his argument is based on his experience and he hasn't seen things happen like this, but also his own intellect. His own intellect is his guiding principle, his, ju his, his judgment line. But for us, we're not stopping there because that's arrogance. 
It says that the God of the universe has to prove himself to me before I can trust his stuff. It's the height of arrogance. But for us, what we're saying is, no, God, we want to submit to you and we want to trust your word. And he has given us every reason to be confident in him and the truthfulness of his word. And I want you to be confident in that. And so therefore, when we read and study our Bibles, we should have great confidence that this is what Jesus originally taught and what his disciples originally wrote. He's protected it throughout history through the work of the Spirit and the work of his people because he desires you to believe in his Son, Jesus, and for that to lead you to love him with your life. So let's pray. And so, Father, come before you. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the many Christians, the many people who've passed down your word to us throughout all the centuries between us and you. And so I pray that you'd fill us with confidence that what we have is true and fill us with, with ammo to be able, to, to, be able to, to shoot down any, any attack against us, against our faith, against your word. Because you've given it to us. You want us to be confident in you, to be confident in your, your truth. And so I pray that you would use it to speak to us, that we would turn to your word and be filled with hope and be filled with confidence that you are there and that you care about us and that you want a relationship with us and that you're not too weak to sustain your word for us. So speak to us with that. And so we thank you and we love you that you're a God who's not distant from us, but that you have taken every effort to, to, to come down to us, to enable us to love you and know who you are and have great confidence in you. And so I pray for us to put our faith in you, put our faith in your word, and to live in light of that, to be people of the book, to be people who are faithful to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.